Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Haggai chapter 2. I mentioned in the first episode in this series that the prophetic ministry of Haggai took place within a 16-week window stretching from August 29th, 520 B.C. through to December 18th, 520 B.C. In verse 1 of Haggai chapter 2, it says that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. So this is about seven weeks into that 16-week window. This is October 520 B.C. on the seventh day of the Feast of Booths. In response to the initial proclamations from Haggai, the people had started working again. Work on the temple had been going on now for about a month. Much of that work would have involved clearing the rubble and testing the stability of the remaining structures. It would have been hard, back-breaking work. And it would have been interrupted at multiple points by the mandated feast and rest days associated with the seventh month of the year. The seventh month of the year was kind of the high holy month for the people of Israel. There was a lot going on, religiously speaking. On the first day of the seventh month, they had the Feast of Trumpets. In Leviticus 23, 24 to 25, God said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Close quote. All right. So no work happened on that day. And then on the 10th day of the seventh month, they had the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, 27 to 28 says, Now, on the 10th day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. All right, so no work happened on that day either. Then on the 15th day of the seventh month, everybody participated in this seven-day camping festival known as the Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23, 34 to 36 says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly you shall not do any ordinary work, closed quote. So by this point, everyone is starting to wonder if they're ever going to make any progress on this seemingly impossible task. Spirits were low. And so very wisely, the Lord sends a word of encouragement through the prophet Haggai. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So, as I said, this message came on the last ordinary day of the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, as it is called in some translations. 
on the eighth day, which would be the next day for the people in this story, they would again be on a day of solemn rest. No ordinary work could be done. So everyone is looking at the rubble of the former temple. Everyone is wondering how in the world they are ever going to get this done. Everyone knows that they have a very long way to go, and they have made precious little progress thus far. And so God sends a message to the leaders and to the people through the prophet Haggai. The message was as follows, beginning at verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So Haggai stands up probably right in the midst of the people gathered for worship, and he speaks to the handful of old timers in the group. He says to them, you think this is hopeless, don't you? You think this half-cleared foundation and these few wobbly walls are never going to measure up to the glory of the former temple, don't you? And you remember, I mean, you were there when, when we made a start on this project back in 537, 17 years ago. You remember that. <laughs> All that work is gone now, and we're starting over from scratch. I admit it, it looks hopeless, but it's not hopeless. And, and do you know why? Because the Lord is with us. His Spirit dwells in our midst. So work, he says, for God is with us. Now, that's a good speech. That's, that's a good oracle of encouragement from the Lord. In verse 5, he references the Exodus, which, of course, is perfect timing because the Feast of Booths was all about remembering how God had led the people out of Egypt. So all the people had just heard sermons and stories about that time when God humbled the greatest political and military superpower on planet Earth earth and how he had led little old Israel out of the belly of the beast and through the waters of the Red Sea and out into the desert where he fed them with the bread of heaven and he refreshed them with water from the rock. He's done the impossible before, Haggai says, and he can do the impossible again. My spirit remains in your midst, says the Lord. Fear not. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's impossible to improve on J. Alec Montier's summary of this majestic passage. He says, The present obedience of the people of God, under the blessing of God, will, through signal and cosmic divine action, be crowned with surpassing glory in which the original purpose of the temple as a work of peace 
will be realized, closed quote. That's it exactly. The present obedience of the people of God in doing the work they've been commanded and encouraged to do will, under the blessing of God promised in verses 4 to 5, be augmented by cosmic and geopolitical interventions, the likes of which they couldn't even begin to imagine, verses 6 to 7, such that the latter glory of this house shall be far greater than even your exaggerated memories of the former house, as per verse 9, and in the end it will achieve precisely the function for which it was originally ordained in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. That's an incredible sequence of promises. Now, as with all prophetic oracles, the promises are imminent but undated. We aren't told when each of these things is going to happen. We're just told that they will. God will take their little, their seemingly insignificant start, and by his grace, his power, and his providence, he will make it much He will add to it. He will crown it. He will realize it. Thanks be to God. That's the sum and substance of this oracle. And so, of course, we expect to see the fulfillment of this oracle happening over stages. And so we do. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says helpfully here, the latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. Was literally true under the Herods, citing here Mark 13.1, but chiefly because the Lord of the temple came, citing Matthew 12.6, and superseded it, citing John 2.13-22. Closed quote. Thus, there was an initial fulfillment of this prophetic chain under King Herod, followed by an even greater fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. But all of that, of course, lies in the future for these hearers. The call upon these people is just to make the beginning. They just need to get started. Their work is to make the tiny little snowball that will roll and roll and grow and grow as it moves forward under the watchful eye of a sovereign God. This small beginning will end in glory beyond all hope and imagination. It will gather in the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. All will come and will bring their glories to ordain the house and dwelling place of God. We catch a glimpse of the absolute end of this glorious chain of promise In Revelation 21, verse 26, when John says, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, close quote. Just like God promises here in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. This little beginning ends in that glorious reality. The whole world renewed, rebuilt, and restored. The Lord himself as the temple and the dwelling place of his people. And in that place, he will give peace. So work. (laughs) Let's get started, the prophet says, because little is much when God is in it. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. This oracle is given on the last recorded day of Haggai's prophetic ministry. This oracle was given on December 18, 520 B.C. It is the first of two oracles that will come to the people on this day by Haggai the prophet. And it comes almost two months after the last oracle, which was given in October on the seventh day of the Feast of Booths. 
the content of the oracle begins in verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This section begins with God directing the prophet to ask a question of the priests. Now, as I mentioned, many scholars assume that Haggai himself was a priest. Regardless, Haggai knew the answer, but he was engaging in a bit of rhetorical theater. He's asking a question everyone knew the answer to. The question was, in essence, is holiness contagious? We get the answer at the end of verse 12. The priests answered and said, no. Okay, then I've got another question for you. Is defilement contagious? If an unclean person touches someone or something, does that person or thing become unclean? We get the answer to that at the end of verse 13. The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now again, everyone knew the answers to these questions. You know the answer to these questions. Your grandmother probably used to say to you, Johnny or Susie, just remember, when you put white gloves into the mud, the gloves are going to get muddy. The mud's not going to get glovey, right? We, we all know this. When you touch clean things to dirty things, the clean things get dirty. It's easy to leave a dirty stain. It's pretty hard to leave a clean stain. That's what the prophet's trying to say here. Then he goes on to apply this truism to the matter of the spiritual and economic life of the nation. He does that in verse 14. So it is with this people. So what you've done, the prophet says, is you've defiled yourself by contact with the nations. We know this was going on very early on in the post-exilic community. Go back and read Ezra 9 and 10 to see how far it went and how firmly it had to be dealt with. There was some serious contamination going on. And as a result, everything the people touched was affected. In verse 15, he says basically that instead of pursuing the presence of the Lord by building the temple, the people have been diving headlong into the ditch of cultural and spiritual contamination. How's that working out for you, he asks. How did you fare when you were doing that? Was your business suffering? Was your farm failing? Were you experiencing setbacks? Hmm, I wonder why that was. 
You get the answer in verse 17. It was because you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You can't build a healthy, just, prosperous society without my help. (laughs) You are a well of contagion, but I am a source of goodness, blessing, and fruitfulness, the Lord says. So your efforts to do this while neglecting the necessity of my presence among you are the height of arrogance and foolishness. That's what's being said here. J. Alec Machir adds his commentary saying, If the people are not right with God, their society will be warped and ineffective, and their religion will reflect their character, (laughs) not change it. The springs of life need to be clean if the outflow is to be clean, closed quote. That's absolutely true. And we need to hear that again in our day, brothers and sisters. So many people right now, in North America in particular, sense that they are losing control of the culture. (laughs) So they want to seize it. They want to fight back to make this land Christian again. But here's the thing. If the people aren't Christians, then the culture can't be Christian in any meaningful way. If the hearts of people, if the springs of life aren't clean, then the overflow of those hearts won't be clean. The culture they create will reflect their particular brokenness and corruption. So the issue is we have to get right with God and everything else will flow out from there. That's what Haggai is saying. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That's the message here. So in verse 18, he says, we're going to make a fresh start. We're going to focus on the temple, the symbol of God's presence in our midst. And from the moment we do that, from the moment we make that decision to prioritize the presence of God, we're going to see a change in our situation. Mark it on your calendar, my friends. Put a big black X there and right beneath that say, Today we decided to get right with the Lord. Today we decided to prioritize worship and devotion. You write that on your calendar. Now keep track of how things go for you from this day forward. Because from this day on, I will bless you, says the Lord. We get a second oracle from Haggai on the same day, which we begin to hear about in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, up until this point, Haggai's prophetic ministry has been devoted pretty much exclusively to the issue of rebuilding the temple. The temple is the symbol of God's presence among the people. To the extent that they neglect the temple, they are communicating, in essence, that they don't value the presence of God in their midst. So he has been encouraging them strongly to re-engage with that work. But now here, in his last recorded oracle, his focus appears to shift. He's not talking about the temple anymore. He's talking about Zerubbabel. And he addresses Zerubbabel in overtly apocalyptic tones. 
God tells him, speak to Zerubbabel, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What's going on here? To, to shake the heavens and the earth is a way of saying that God is going to stir the pot. God is going to flip the script. He is going to do something to alter the course of human history. Now, the Bible says God does this all the time. Psalm 75 verse 7 says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another closed quote so god does this and and god will do this again he will do this again in the future in verses 21 to 22 then god is telling zerubbabel through haggai that the world he is living in now the world dominated by persia the world in which he is harassed daily by the samaritans that world is not going to last forever a big shake is coming a shake that God will ordain and oversee, a shake that will create entirely new conditions. Verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So in that shake, God will hold Zerubbabel in special esteem. To make him like a signet ring is to say that he will be treated as personal and precious to the Lord. So this is God putting his electing love on Zerubbabel in the same way that he put it on Jacob, but not Esau. In the same way he put it on the house of David, but not on the house of Saul. He sang to Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the world. I am about to upend the social, political, and military order. But in this shake, through this shake, I will hold you fast. Your house will not be moved. I'm going to do something through you that will bless the entire world. And of course, that promise takes us forward to the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham, who is the greater son of David, who is the cornerstone and temple of the Lord, and who came into the world, according to Matthew 1, verse 13, through the line of Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That is the house. That is the temple that will last forever and that will save the world. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 